to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 15th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Meta is sued for allegedly inciting violence in Ethiopia. Flooding in the Democratic Republic of Congo kills at least 141. The United States is reportedly ready to provide advanced missile defense systems to Ukraine. Four migrants die after their boat capsizes in the English Channel. U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders withdraws his Yemen war powers resolution. The U.N. says a famine declaration in Somalia has been narrowly averted. Business magnate Rupert Murdoch is deposed over Fox News' 2020 election reporting. The U.S. Fed increases interest rates by another half percent. Florida Governor DeSantis calls for a grand jury on COVID vaccines. And the CDC finds that long COVID can be deadly. In our top story, Meta is sued for $2 billion over violent killing in Ethiopia. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, Al Jazeera, DW, NBC, Washington Post, and Reuters. A group of researchers and activists have filed a lawsuit against Facebook's parent company, Meta Platforms Incorporated, in Kenya's high court. The group accuses the company of amplifying hate speech and inciting violence in Ethiopia on the platform. They are also calling for about $2 billion in restitution. The lawsuit contends that Facebook's recommendation systems amplified violent posts in Ethiopia which has been in a state of civil war since November 2022, including several that preceded the murder of the father of Mereg Amari Abra, one of the researchers who brought the case. Abram Mereg, the son of Tigrayan academic Amari Abra, said his father was targeted by a series of threatening posts because of his Tigrayan ethnicity. The posts were reported to Facebook because they contained his father's address and called for his death. Merig's father was eventually murdered on November 3, 2021, when a group of men followed him from his university on motorbikes and shot him twice in front of his home. The violent posts, which appeared on a page with 50,000 followers, weren't taken down by Facebook until long after his death. Meta has responded to the suit saying, quote, We employ staff with local knowledge and expertise and continue to develop our capabilities to catch violating content in the most widely spoken languages in the country, including Amharic, Oromo, Somali, and Tigrinya. The case comes as Meta faces increasing criticism regarding its content moderation in countries afflicted by conflict and alleged atrocities, such as Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and Cambodia. The company has acknowledged that it was too slow to act in Myanmar and other countries. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on this story. Here on the show, we separate the facts from the narrative spin. For this story, we have a couple of different spins. The first is an establishment critical narrative, and it's provided by BBC News. Meta yet again has blood on its hands. Its lack of content moderation or sensible policy has led to the death of Mire Gamare Abra and possibly many others. This is what happens when large Western companies fail to even attempt to understand the complexities of social conflict outside of their regions. The level of negligence Meta has shown in this case should be considered criminal, as its inability to stop the spread of violent rhetoric has directly led to increased violence and death. Thank you, Adam. Wired is giving us a pro-establishment narrative for this story. 
Though Meta certainly has work to do regarding content moderation, this is a new frontier in human history, and it will take time to refine a new system. Facebook flagged Ethiopia as being a dire risk of violence in 2021 and put its most effective resources towards fighting hate speech and violent rhetoric. Unfortunately, Ethiopian users didn't engage with hate speech in the same way users from other regions did, so Meta had to think on the fly to adjust this difference. I was just going to say, you know, it's, it's just truly amazing this day and age how powerful social media is and how it affects almost everything. Yeah, I like to think of the positive side of it as well, that social media has opened up everyone to what's going on in the world, not just your own little region. I can think of one person who's definitely happy about this story, Elon Musk. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Severe flooding in the Democratic Republic of Congo has killed at least 141 people. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by New York Times, Reuters, Al Jazeera, TRT World, and African News. According to officials, at least 141 people have died in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC, on Tuesday, after floods caused landslides in the capital city of Kinshasa. President Felix Shishikidi on Wednesday declared three days of mourning. Entire neighborhoods have been inundated with floodwaters and mud, destroying homes and roads and creating sinkholes, one of which destroyed the roadway between Kinshasa and the chief seaport of Matadi. One resident living in Mount Gafula said, quote, We've never seen a flood here on this scale, adding, I was asleep and I could feel water in the house. It's a disaster. We've lost all our possessions in the house. Nothing could be saved. As Kinshasa is located on the Congo River, poor regulation and increased urbanization has made the growing city vulnerable to flash floods following intense rain events, which have increased recently. Officials say much of the destruction happened to houses built on plots without official permission. A similar flood killed at least 32 in and around Kinshasa in 2019. Prime Minister Jean-Michel Sama Lukande and the provincial governor visited the flooded areas and have made plans to meet with regional representatives to discuss addressing the emergency. Each day of flooding in the capital is estimated to cost households $1.2 million in transportation disruption. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. As we look at the spins, beginning with the pro-establishment narrative, it's coming from The Conversation. This latest disaster is evidence that climate change is widespread and rapidly accelerating. As cities face increased extreme events like flooding, the world needs to adapt. Local and national governments are reacting too slowly. We must stop standing idly by amid this ecological crisis and open our eyes to the economic opportunity to grow our cities equitably for the future. And ReliefWeb has provided us with an establishment critical narrative. Climate change threatens every nation on the planet, but poor nations like the DRC are facing the brunt of the disastrous impacts. Rising temperatures, changing rainfall patterns, and failed crop seasons will only worsen until appropriate funding is allocated to help these overpopulated and impoverished regions develop economically and infrastructurally. This story has also generated a third narrative, and it's coming from Financial Times. It's easy to dismiss any extreme weather event as a consequence of climate change, but in reality, 
they're usually influenced by a myriad of factors that have nothing to do with it. More research is needed before we can establish any direct causal link between the two. And occasionally we'll have a statistics-based nerd narrative on these stories provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. And here's one for this story. There's a 50% chance that sea levels will rise by at least 578 millimeters by the year 2100. All I can picture is those little arm floaties that I used to put on my kids. Get a bunch of cute ones, you know, like those <laughs> clear pink one, plastic ones. <laughs> we continue our coverage of the conflict in Ukraine, looking at day 294, as the U.S. is poised to provide advanced missile defense systems, according to reports. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Donetsk News Agency, Ukraine Forum, Associated Press, and TASS. According to reports in CNN, Reuters, and the Associated Press, all of whom cited three unnamed American officials on Tuesday, the U.S. is finalizing plans to send Raytheon-made Patriot missile defense systems to Ukraine, while a decision on sending the advanced system has reportedly been in consideration for some time. The trigger hasn't been pulled amid fears it would be seen as an escalation by Russia, as well as concerns it would require U.S. troops in Ukraine to operate its technology. Nonetheless, the three outlets reported that an affirmative decision is expected this week. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, multiple blasts were heard in Kyiv and its surrounding region, after Russia launched a renewed drone attack on the capital before daybreak. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reported that all 13 drones were intercepted by missile defense systems. Nevertheless, five buildings were reportedly damaged, believed to be a result of falling debris. There were no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Further Russian attacks using rockets, mortars, and artillery were reported in Kherson, where one civilian was reported killed and another was injured. The regions of Sumy, Mykolaiv, and Dnipropetrovsk were also attacked without reports of civilian casualties. Meanwhile, pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, reported that seven civilians were killed and four more were injured in Ukrainian attacks on the region over the past day. Elsewhere, amid reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin has canceled his annual State of the Union address and press conference, a parliamentary source told Russian news agency TASS that it will likely be held in early 2023, though this hasn't been confirmed. Eric, thank you for the update on the situation in Ukraine. We have an anti-Russia narrative, and it's provided by Associated Press. Zelensky has constantly pleaded with Western countries to provide more advanced weapons systems to help bring about an end to the war. Delivery of the Patriot missile defense system will help Ukraine defend itself from Russia aerial attacks more effectively. A pro-Russia narrative is coming from TASS. This move is not only about defense, it is an escalation. If the U.S. sends Patriot missile defense systems to Kyiv, they will be considered fair game for Russian attacks as will any personnel who are needed for their operation. And there's a nerd narrative that states there's a 15% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. At least four are dead after a migrant boat has capsized in the English Channel. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NewsBud, New York Times, BBC News, Daily Mail, Reuters, and CBS. At least four migrants crossing the English Channel from France have died after their boat capsized off the coast of Kent, England, near Dungeness. 
A search and rescue operation involving helicopters and lifeboats began at around 3 a.m. Wednesday, with 43 people being rescued. The British Coast Guard, as well as a Royal Navy patrol boat, a French Navy helicopter, and a French fishing boat, helped evacuate the passengers. Volunteer lifeboats were also dispatched along the Kent coastline and Dungeness. More than 30 of the 43 passengers saved were rescued from the water, with temperatures reaching 1 degree Celsius overnight and a yellow weather warning for ice in place across Kent. Temperatures were likely colder at sea. The migrants who were from Afghanistan, Iraq, Senegal, and India said they had paid a trafficker in France 5,000 euros, or $6,200, for the trip. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who vowed on Tuesday to invest more in deterring small boats and people smuggling, voiced sorrow at the tragic loss of human life. The news comes a year after 23 people died making the journey in November 2021. Despite the freezing weather, over 500 migrants have made the cross-channel trek since this past weekend alone, with a record more than 40,000 total arriving from France this year. A third of all migrant arrivals this year, roughly 13,000, have been Albanian, with Sunak yesterday also announcing a deal with Albania to stem the flow of migrants crossing the channel from mainland Europe. Thank you for that story, Adam. Those were the facts, and there are two spins, beginning with a right narrative coming from The Sun. The only beneficiaries of this human trafficking scheme are the criminals who profit from sending migrants across dangerous waters. Illegal immigration into England doesn't benefit the migrants or the British taxpayers who bear the financial costs of housing them. Sunak's plan to end these crossings is the only viable solution. And right narratives are typically followed up by a left narrative, and this time it's provided by Guardian. While an argument can be made in favor of sending Albanians in particular back, Sunak's asylum system reconfiguration plan is neither sympathetic nor actionable. Ideas such as patrolling French coasts with, quote, boots on the ground, or the failed Rwandan plan are ridiculous, and the many real asylum seekers among these arrivals deserve better than what the government has proposed so far. Adam, what this story doesn't tell us is that uh, Sunak has got his eyes on Martha's Vineyard. He's already checking flights. And if he can't get a flight, he can probably get a good deal on a big life raft. <laughs> In our next story, Senator Sanders withdraws his Yemen War Powers Resolution. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Archive Today, Common Dreams, Intercept, and Anti-War. U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, Democrat of Vermont, withdrew his request to vote on the Yemen War Powers Resolution on Tuesday, citing White House opposition. The resolution would have forced the U.S. government to cease its support in the war in Yemen. The White House was reportedly pressuring senators to vote against the resolution, with presidential aides making it clear that President Joe Biden, quote, strongly opposed the bill and would veto it if it made it to his desk. In a statement, Sanders said he would work with the Biden administration to reach an agreement on ending the war. And if no agreement is reached, he'll bring this resolution back for a vote in the near future and do everything possible to end this horrific conflict. This comes as the UN Children's Fund, or UNICEF, released a report on Monday stating that more than 11,000 children have been killed or maimed in Yemen's civil war since it began in late 2014. In his first month as president, Biden ceased U.S. aid for Saudi-led operations in Yemen, 
but the U.S. allegedly continues to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia and share intelligence. Over the past summer, a war powers resolution introduced by Sanders in the Senate and the House sought to end U.S. intelligence sharing, direct military personnel, and logistical support for Saudi-led forces. Thank you, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story, and it's provided by Financial Times. Saudi Arabia is a valuable ally, and the U.S. must keep supporting Riyadh against the Iran-backed Houthis, who are a terrorist organization. Even though the Saudis have met some of the Houthis' demands, the rebels won't let up, leaving the Saudis with no choice but to continue their efforts. Ideally, the U.S. can help the Saudis win the war, while also doing a better job of focusing on military targets and being open about any mistakes they make. Thank you, Adam. There is an establishment critical narrative for this story as well, and it's coming from Counterpunch. The time to act to stop the inhumane suffering in Yemen is now. The Saudis and Emiratus are conducting war crimes, and the Houthis' resistance is just as legitimate as the resistance in Ukraine. Biden's previous moves to resist Saudi intervention didn't have their desired effect, and at this point, the Saudis have given him every reason to oppose their efforts strongly. U.S. support for this proxy war must stop. Our next story is a report that southern Somalia may experience a catastrophic famine. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Relief Web, Earth Observatory, Fox News, Guardian, and Voice of America. In a report released Tuesday, the U.N. suggested that a famine declaration in Somalia has been narrowly averted due to the response of humanitarian actors and local communities. However, the still catastrophic situation risks tipping into famine in southern Somalia in the coming months. The report suggests that 8.3 million people are expected to face, quote, crises or worse conditions between April to June of 2023 due to, quote, the impacts of five consecutive seasons of poor rainfall, a likely sixth season of below average rainfall from March to June of 2023 and exceptionally high food prices, exacerbated by concurrent conflict or insecurity and disease outbreaks. This comes as NASA has assessed that the Horn of Africa region in general is, quote, experiencing the longest and most severe drought on record, threatening millions of people with starvation. With 21 million people at risk of food insecurity, human-induced warming, Temperatures in the Indian Ocean and the ongoing La Nina conditions are cited as factors. The report suggests that the most probable scenario will see more than 700,000 people enter famine conditions, including in the Bay region, the town of Beidoa, and Mogadishu. However, this risk could expand into other areas if a sixth straight rainy season fails. The prospect of a potential famine declaration has been viewed as a politically charged process for months, with Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed reportedly concerned that such a declaration may reroute the development money and potentially hamper development, investment, and conflict resolution efforts to curb al-Shabaab and ongoing violence. This comes as a so-called, quote, Grain for Ukraine initiative has begun shipments to the region to address food insecurity. A vessel with 25,000 tons of wheat is being prepared to transit to Somalia per Ukraine's embassy in Ethiopia. Adam, thank you for the facts of that report. Two spins emerging beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from BBC News. 
The generosity of the international humanitarian community and the UN system is all that has kept Somalia from temporarily slipping into a catastrophic famine. If a full-court press of aid isn't scaled up, early next year could be a nightmare. In a world with an unstable climate, a sixth street failure of the rainy season will cause mass suffering. We can and must ensure that food security is a sustained reality. And there's an establishment critical narrative provided by Al Mayadeen. Hot button issues like famine declarations are always part of a complex political tapestry. The current Somali government is worried that a formal famine declaration may prompt unstable rural to urban migration, play into the hands of Al Shabaab, and divert international funds away from investment, development, health care, education, and climate resilience. While the global community needs to address food insecurity, it must sensitively support the holistic needs of Somalia also. So much for a gluten-free Somalia. That's right. They're going to have all kinds of wheat. (laughs) (laughs) Turning our attention back to the United States, Rupert Murdoch deposed over 2020 election reporting. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Independent, Forbes, CNN, and New York Times. On Tuesday, Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of Fox Corporation, was scheduled to sit for a deposition as part of a defamation lawsuit alleging that Fox News promoted false claims that a voting tech company rigged the 2020 U.S. presidential election. According to a filing in Delaware Superior Court, Murdoch's deposition was scheduled to take place remotely on December 13th and 14th. Dominion Voting Systems, which is suing Fox News for $1.6 billion, alleges Fox pushed statements in line with hard-right conspiracy theories that voting machines were rigged to hurt Trump. Lachlan Murdoch, the CEO of Fox Corporation and Rupert Murdoch's son, gave his deposition previously. Neither are named as defendants in the suit. What Fox executives and personalities who've sat with Dominion lawyers have said during previous depositions is unknown. Fox hasn't commented, and the company previously contested Dominion's claims, saying it was, quote, proud of its 2020 coverage. A trial has been set for April of 2023. A separate defamation suit against Fox by voting company Smartmatic for $2.6 billion won't be ready for trial until the summer of 2024. Eric, thank you for the facts. We have a left narrative, and it's provided by Guardian. It looks like the, quote, alternative universe that Fox News resides in is finally being shattered. Dominion isn't just going after the network for the falsities it spread about voting machines. It's establishing a pattern, through depositions, of Fox spewing misinformation. Fox shouldn't have aligned itself with extremists regarding election denial. And Financial Times is giving us a right narrative. Freedom of the press is foundational to democracy. And Fox News' right to report on the news and provide opinion and analysis is under attack. The allegations aired were extremely newsworthy at the time, and Fox gave Dominion a platform to respond. It will be extremely difficult to prove, quote, actual malice, so Fox will undoubtedly prevail, and Fox journalists will continue to do their vital job. Our next story focuses on the U.S. Fed as it's boosts its interest rates by another half percent. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, New York Times, CNBC, Daily Wire, New York Post, and ABC. 
In a slowdown after four consecutive 0.75% interest rate increases, the U.S. Federal Reserve, or the Fed, announced a half-percent rate hike on Wednesday in its continuing battle against inflation. The latest move brings the benchmark rate to a 15-year high range of 4.25% to 4.5%. Central bank officials are now projecting rates to hit 5.1% next year, up from previous predictions of 4.6% when they last issued forecast in September. They're also projecting inflation to remain high for longer than expected, with consumer prices anticipated to jump 3.1% next year and 2.5% in 2024. The consensus among officials is that after reaching the peak rate of 5.1% next year, they'll wait for its impact to spread through the economy. After that, the Fed is expected to make a full percentage point cut in 2024, another in 2025, and finally settle at a neutral point of 2.5% after that. The move came shortly after the release of November's job report, which showed a lower-than-expected 7.1% year-over-year spike in the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, including a half-percent jump in food costs and 0.6% in shelter prices. However, energy prices saw a 1.6% dip as rate hikes have impacted the entire economy, including credit card rates, auto loans, and savings accounts, experts warn home prices could fall by as much as 20% from their recent peaks. As the Fed continues to battle the still-growing job market and raising wages due to inflation, the personal savings rate fell to a nearly two-decade low of 2.3% last month suggesting cash stashed away during the pandemic hasn't been able to compete with the rise in prices. Adam, thank you for that report. And this story has generated several spins. And we're going to start with an establishment critical narrative coming from MarketWatch. In an attempt to restore its credibility and the public's trust, the Fed has foolishly decided to continue with its monetary tightening despite compelling evidence from November's job report that the central bank has successfully eased the pace of inflation, a fact the media has unsurprisingly downplayed. To compensate for its initially slow response, the Fed is now raising rates too far, which risks pushing the U.S. economy over the ever-nearing recession finish line. And the Wall Street Journal has provided a pro-establishment narrative. Though energy prices were down in the latest CPI report, food and services costs have remained on the rise, which is why the Fed is correct in the latest rate hike decision, as wages increase in a market still waiting to fill 10 million jobs, hopes for a rate decrease anytime soon should be quelled, as employers are still catching up with current inflation. While painful, fighting inflation now will allow the U.S. to return to normal sooner. And CNN is giving us a cynical narrative. Though the Fed has done a good job so far, there is a potentially dreadful scenario due to U.S. policy's effect on the global economy. With Europe likely to face a harsher economic downturn, international players may call on the U.S. central bank to bring rates down to help their economies breathe, which would let domestic inflation loose again and ruin all the progress the U.S. has made. Chairman Powell must be cognizant of these possibilities. And the nerds at Metaculus have an opinion on this story. There's a 35% chance that the U.S. will enter a recession before 2023. 
Well, they've only got about well, 17 days left. As I say, they better get they better get on it. But still, that's 30. There's still a 35 percent chance that it might happen. So, like, right. you know, it may happen before my milk expires. It could happen before we finish reading. The, oh, it happened. Oh, it, it happened. happened. It, happened. <laughs> it happened. I wasn't even paying attention. I didn't even notice it happened. In our next story, Florida Governor DeSantis calls for grand jury on COVID vaccines. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Associated Press, Newsweek, and Washington Post. On Tuesday, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis announced he would request that the state Supreme Court convene a grand jury to investigate potential wrongdoings related to COVID vaccines. DeSantis, who is seen as a favorite for the 2024 Republican nomination for president, made the announcement after attending a roundtable with Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo and other physicians and scientists who are concerned about the vaccines, their manufacturers, and the CDC's guidelines related to the jabs. Vaccine studies by the manufacturers have been published in peer-reviewed journals, and government panels have reviewed the data related to the safety and effectiveness of the jabs. But DeSantis said he also wants access to the data. Research from organizations like the National Institute of Health has looked into cases where the vaccines might have caused some of the symptoms associated with long COVID. But in general, the CDC has provided data showing low rates of medical care after vaccination. In the same announcement, DeSantis unveiled plans to create a state committee to review federal health recommendations, which will be chaired by Ladapo. Thank you, Eric. Of course, with such a politically focused story here, we have a Republican narrative and it's provided by Breitbart. It's time to hold manufacturers and public officials accountable for any misleading claims they have made about vaccines, such as Biden's false assertion that they would stop the contraction and transmission of the virus. The public needs to see what the data says about health risks, especially heart problems, related to the jab, and not just take the manufacturer's word at face value. We're going to counter the Republican narrative with a Democratic one coming from Daily Kos. This is nothing more than a political ploy as DeSantis attempts to solidify his road to the 2024 nomination. Plenty of independent, peer-reviewed studies show that not only are severe post-jab health problems extremely rare, but that the risk of death is greater for those who are unvaccinated. Nothing a grand jury could learn will change that. And there's a nerd narrative that states there's a 30% chance that Ron DeSantis will be elected president of the U.S. by 2029. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Our last story today is a CDC report that long COVID can be deadly. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Washington Post, CNN, and LA Times. In a study published on Wednesday by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, long COVID was cited as the cause of death for at least 3,544 Americans during the first two and a half years of the pandemic. Although this represents 0.3% of the over 1 million Americans who have died from the virus, the study's findings suggest that while long COVID is correlated to long-term illness, it, quote, can be a cause of death. The data showed that women are more likely to develop long COVID, but men have a higher percentage of long COVID deaths. Most documented deaths occurred in people between the ages of 75 and 84, at roughly 30%. Those 85 years and older represented the second largest death toll. While this report is the first attempted by the CDC to account for the death toll of long COVID, some health experts believe the results are a significant underestimation. 
considering that 30% of people who contract the virus report experiencing long COVID symptoms. Epidemiologist Dr. Zaid Al-Ali, who didn't participate in the CDC study, said, quote, we're pretty good at capturing acute disease, but the medical profession has a, quote, major, major blind spot when it comes to anticipating long-term outcomes. Some researchers expressed concern that the data doesn't account for people who suffered suicidal thoughts, suicidal acts, or suicidal ideation, and completed those acts following an acute COVID infection. Adam, thank you for that report. And this final story of the podcast is generating several spins, beginning with Narrative A. It's coming from NPR. As the world emerges from the worst of the COVID pandemic, more studies will need to be conducted to better understand what the virus does to the human body and how those changes will impact the inflicted in both the short and long term. Until medical professionals fully understand the pathology of the virus and subsequent disease, we must support patients with their troubling long COVID experiences. There's also a narrative B provided by CNN. Medical experts are excited and hopeful to see the CDC studying deaths for long COVID. Now that institutions are coming on board, doctors can also be better educated on the long-term consequences. The data only shows a snapshot of the long COVID tragedy, but the profession is moving in the right direction. And Spectator is giving us a cynical narrative for this story. Quote, long COVID is just the latest chapter in the pandemic fear campaign. In fact, other reputable studies indicate long COVID may be no worse than any other post-viral syndrome. Statistics are easily manipulated, as we've seen time and time again in the past three years. And this latest bout of COVID alarmism should be taken with a grain of salt. And for our final opinion, it's the nerds at the Metaculous Prediction community, and they believe there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.1 million confirmed COVID deaths in the U.S. by the end of 2022. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 15th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.